Hey, everybody. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 10 of Tailgating with Geniuses, lawn chair conversations with A-listers from the worlds of business, media, sports, and entertainment. I'm Ken Schmidt, one of your three tolerable hosts, and I'm joined, as always, by... Horton Flaherty. And Lakon Bashwa. Glad you're here, fellas. Our brilliant guest joining us in just a few minutes is Tiffany Bova, the global customer growth and innovation evangelist at Salesforce. So you can bet we'll be talking a lot about customer experience and sales growth, or come on, the painful lack of both at a lot of companies and what to do about it. It's going to be fun. Meanwhile, we've popped the top on some Pringles, the official, non-official, stackable snack food of tailgating with geniuses, now available in 25 varieties. What do you say, guys? Mm. Let's do this. I'm in. All right. Okay, so I was on a driving trip this past weekend in Wisconsin with a buddy of mine, and we're both really into trucks and have been forever. So, of course, we were talking about trucks and cars, and I was complaining about car dealerships and how cars and trucks are sold, and he completely shocked me by saying something I've never really heard before. He said he actually enjoys going into dealerships, haggling, and working the deal. And I got to tell you, fellas, I'm... Not that guy. I abhor the car buying process and everything about it. And if you know what I mean, then you know what I mean. And but here's the thing. And I know, Martin, you and I at least have this in common. Work with a lot of car companies and dealer organizations over the years, going back over 20 years. Sure. And during all that time, I've heard a million times the same messages over and over. We're really doubling down on creating a great retail experience this year, or we're changing how we do business, or we're going to be more customer-centric, we're going to deliver these great experiences. But for the most part, I haven't really experienced any of that other than the traditional haggling and back and forth and all that other kind of nasty stuff that happens. So today's Wall Street Journal news out of Ford and I like Ford a lot. I'm an F50 guy. Really hit home. And I immediately pinged Martin and Lacon about it. And to my total not surprise, discovered that they were all over it, too. They'd already read it, were as excited about it as I was. What do you think, Martin? What, what's Ford up to? So what came across the wire, I guess, is obvious to some people, but it's a really surprising move organizationally that Ford has proposed and stated, and they're doing it already with the Mach-E, the new Mustang, that they are going to begin migrating to a build-to-order way of purchasing cars. They're going to start de-emphasizing the production of cars and putting them just on various car dealership lots and moving much more to a way in which you spec and order your car online and then you go to a local dealer, pick your car up and drive it away. Financing, filling out your documentation, looking at the product, what you actually want to have built will be done by you through the website. Uh, they've already launched it as a preliminary work for the Mustang, which is called Ford Express Buy. And they're just going to migrate that slowly across the line of products. And what's interesting is dealerships have been actively pushing lawsuits as late as June this year up in Hartford, Connecticut, suing places like Tesla, Rivian, Lucid, trying to stop them from doing this exact thing, direct-to-consumer sales. We're seeing a sea change, and we're seeing it in one of the most old-school, straightforward, old blocking and tackling, haggling market out there, which is your local dealership. People are nervous and looking not at if I'm a car dealer, the benefit to the customer, giving the customer choice and creating a better buying experience for them and getting them exactly what they want, they're seeing that as a threat to their traditional way of doing business. So, so that to me is amusing and not at all customer experience driven. This is the classic battle between small and large. It's interesting. On one hand, the lawsuits against Tesla are ridiculous. They are piss poor way of doing business. However, there's an interesting juxtaposition, right? If you look up a guy called Rich Rebuilds on YouTube, he runs what he calls the electrified garage. Here's a guy who's been fighting the right to repair battle for a long time. Oh, I know him. Yeah. And it's fascinating, right? When you watch what he's doing, so he repairs Teslas for people. And if you watch one of the things that's started happening more and more recently are people who have had a small issue with their Tesla. And when they go to the Tesla service center, which by the way, is 
only available if you live in large cities, right? So some people yep. have to go yep. two states away or, and so you're flatbedding your car now two, three states away from where you are just to get the Tesla dealership to say, oh, by the way, it's going to be 16 grand to fix something that is tiny. Sometimes it's a single cell in the battery. Other times it's been a small little hose that allows the cooling to happen, right? Yeah. And here, Rich takes these things and they repair them for two, $3,000, right? No, dude, don't you remember the last one on the hose? It was like a $300 repair pair but he voided the warranty from home depot yeah it was the most ridiculous thing so anyways keep going so i mean the thing here is the dealer has a point right we are the last mile we help fix these things and they're right however if i want to purchase directly through the manufacturer through the website and i prefer that i should have the choice the real issue here is customers not being given the agency to decide their own path and i think that's the crazy part here what's fascinating to me though recently is the right to repair bill that only that passed Congress. Funny enough that this is the one issue that has actually gotten Democrats and Republicans to vote together because it was actually a bipartisan support for this bill that now has been signed and asking the FTC to sit there and, and defend the consumer by enforcing the right to repair. Whether it's ordering or whether it's fixing your car on the back end, it is an interesting battle now between sort of us buying devices that we basically are being told, you know what, it's still kind of owned by the person who made it, which is a very different thing for us in America, especially when it comes to cars. There's a demystification that's happened. Our guest has said before, I watched her and, and she said, okay, everyone, how much? How many of y'all just ordered from Amazon in the last three days? And virtually everybody in the audience raises their hands. And then she says, uh, so how many of you all watched the instruction video on how to use Amazon? And of course, everyone starts chuckling. No one raises their hand. She said, this is customer experience. This is the UI. This is that user experience that's been developed, or pardon me, user interface, UX, user experience that's been developed that we all now know. And it used to be that when buying a car, it was sort of a mysterious thing. You didn't know your simple request to a salesman. That guy had to disappear for 30 minutes and talk to his manager and see if it was even possible. And like you didn't know because it involved the Langstrom seven inch gangling wrench with an Eldorock three quarter timing chain and the Morfob was out of warranty. And you, like it was mysteries. But now like there has been this demystification of this process and you can go ahead and select because the models are the models. The, the companies allow you to pick option packages, colors online. All of these things are done. So right now we're all used to specking and buying products online as it is right now. So it's a natural progression that this simply happens next in this industry. It's a huge level of disruption, though. This is sort of that battle between I know exactly what I want. Just let me freaking buy it. Get out of the way. Right. And then I don't necessarily want to be sold to and companies not realizing there are different types of buyers out there now. And you as the company have to actually adjust to the different types of buyers showing up at your door. What's fun to me is that the old school dealer, the traditional high pressure sales, haggling, discomfort, jamming, extended warranties down your throat. I'm assuming and guessing, I'm betting I'm right, that they're the ones that are most worried that the people who want instant gratification, the people who want to just take a car off the lot today, are going to bail and go elsewhere, a place where they have cars on the lot. And my reaction to that is, well, isn't that the single greatest driver you can imagine or incentive to start working now on creating great experience, on delighting the people that you serve, on delighting customers, so that even if the entire world goes build to order, They're going to like you enough. They're going to have an established relationship or friendship with you and the people that work there and the service people that they're going to continue to do business with you. And you won't run the risk of them going elsewhere. I think it's black and white. That requires you to change your organization, right? Rather than just take well, center. That's what I'm saying. Say if, you, if you, you've been talking about it for years, this is kind of the light at the end of the tunnel coming towards you. So now's our time. We have to, we've got to bend. But if you can we've just take, change our approach. you know, Senator Bob to dinner and get the law of the land literally changed to say you cannot right. buy from a dealer. Oh, it's just yeah. easier, right? And keep the More status quo going. Yeah. <laughs> New, yeah, New York, New Jersey, they were doing that. And, and there's a lawsuit right now in East Hartford, or it was in place, it was started in June of this year to stop Tesla. And it's all those things, Lakon, you're absolutely right, the political wrangling that's been done on this. But I just sort of marvel at it. If you're seeing something as big as this Goliath shifting and changing, then you really have to look internally at your organization to say, what are the things that you need to be doing? Because what was baked in and normal is all being blown up 
really quickly. And if it's not happening to you right now, it's more than likely going to happen within a very short amount of time. So I don't have any insider information on any of this, but one thing to Ford's credit, right? Their recent past CEO, Jim Hackett. One thing about Jim Hackett, if you know him, is that his biggest thing he's pushed for over a decade and a half now is this idea of user-centered design, right? He's been a champion of this whole thing. And I cannot imagine that was not a part of this overall getting an organization like that over his tenure to get an organization to start to think about sort of reorienting from the outside in and really sort of thinking about that user as the central point. I mean, I look at the products they're bringing out today. Clearly, there's a shift in Ford's outlook on the future, both from what they're doing with the cars, how they're thinking about it, the investments they're making into driverless. I mean, they're just doing a lot. And I think there's something to be said about the leadership having been a major part of what's going on there. One of the things I saw over the years at Harley-Davidson comes down to the pride of ownership people feel in a vehicle they helped create. So they didn't just buy something off the lot. They didn't buy a stock motorcycle. They work with the staff at the dealership to have it customized, to reflect their personality, to fit their body size and their riding style and all these other kind of wonderful dynamics. Their pride of ownership just soars in that dynamic. I didn't accept somebody else's thing. I made it mine. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen in the build to order with cars. Bragging rights go up. I didn't just buy this off a lot. Look at this cool thing that I created. So it's going to be fun to watch. Okay, as promised, let's welcome to the show the incredible Tiffany Bova. She's the global customer growth and innovation evangelist. I mean, talk about a cool title at Salesforce. Talk about a great business. And over the last two decades, Tiffany has led revenue-producing divisions of businesses ranging from startups on up to the Fortune 500. She also spent 10 years at Gartner, which we're quite familiar with, the world's leading IT research and advisory firm as a distinguished analyst and research fellow. In her first book, which you're going to want to read, Growth IQ, Tiffany outlines the 10 paths to growth that every company needs to understand in order to grow with confidence. And I'll also say she's a very popular speaker, which is how I encountered her in the first place. And you can find a lot of her videos online and see her in action, which, of course, I encourage you to do. Tiffany, welcome to Tailgating with Geniuses. Thanks for having me, Ken. I'm thrilled to be here. Hey, great. As you were talking customer experience, talking about Ford Motor Company, because Customer experience is something that a lot of businesses are really good at talking about, but seem to be, let's just say, slow when it comes to actually doing something about it, acknowledging that it's something that they need to be working on. And I know this is something that, of course, is in your blood, only in your case, you you actually put data to it. And here's the thing that really got me, Tiffany. You said that 67% of us say that we will pay more for something, whatever it is, if we're having or believe we're having a great experience. So knowing that, why isn't the whole business world just laser focused on actually delivering the great experiences we all want instead of just talking about it? What are the barriers that you're seeing? Well, Ken, it's a great question and one I get often asked. And I try to start at the 40,000 foot level and say mm -hmm. part of the reason that we have sometimes less than optimal experiences as customers is there isn't agreement internally in an organization on what a compelling, meaningful experience is. Is it a good user interface? Is it a kind customer service agent? Is it a knowledgeable salesperson? Is it a inclusive ad? What is it? Yes, it's all of those things, right? And so the challenge is for me is sometimes people, number one, don't agree on what it means, Number two, then, what is the metric or KPI that goes behind measuring, hey, where are we and where do we want to get? And then how do we close that gap and what things do we need to do? And the third one I'll say is that I was part of the team at Gartner a number of years back that made the prediction that the chief marketing officer would spend more on technology than the chief information officer. And it sent off, first of all, everyone went, oh, that's blasphemy. How dare you say that? But lo and behold, right? A number of big tech companies, Oracle, SAP, Microsoft, Salesforce, all went out and bought technologies that would serve that marketer. And a lot of that was because of us and others were saying customer experience was going to be the new battleground. And what came out of that was the chief marketing officer is like, we own CX. And so I bring those three things to you because no one person owns CX. Everybody has to own it. I understand from a metric perspective, someone needs to sort of hold that number and understand where are we and where are we going. 
And then there has to be an agreement at the top on what it means to the organization and constantly communicating and sharing how everybody's role throughout the company, day in and day out, plays a part in delivering those strong customer experiences. If somebody asks you, Tiffany, and I'm sure they do, who is somebody out there, large or small business, that has embraced customer experience, driven it into their business's DNA, consistently deliver it, and are rewarded for it? Who's good at it? So there are, you know, many brands that do a great job. It could be someone like, you know, Southwest Airlines, could be Nordstrom, could be Starbucks, Uber, Hilton Hotels, Lamborghini. I mean, there are a lot. What's important in that question is each of us individually view the experience maybe through a different lens. So I'm, I'm just going to give an example. If you went to a really high-end restaurant that was expensive and the service was just okay, would you go back? Now it depends. If you really enjoyed the food and you're a foodie, even though the service was kind of a little you know, crappy, you might still go back. If the food was really expensive and the service wasn't that great and you actually care about the totality of the food and the experience, you might not go back. And so sometimes there's a varying difference where someone said, I had the best experience at this particular brand. So when I'm in front of executives, I actually ask them that question and I say, outside of your own brand, like where you work, what was the brand of your last best experience? And then I say to them, when I ask the next company tomorrow, that same question, will they say your brand, right? Mm -hmm. And so when they start to rattle off brands, sometimes it's a gym, sometimes it's a liquor store, sometimes it's a local dry cleaner. It can be at the local level. It could be a one-on-one, like your insurance agent, or it could be at the brand level. It's hard to nail in on one because I think there's so many factors that play a part in that. When Ken told me that you had said yes, which was really great, I had known about you and I had seen some of your work before, but I went to LinkedIn, right? I looked up and just to see, what are you on LinkedIn? And it was really visual music to my ears because you put a quote up right above you that says the fastest way to get customers to love your brand is to get your employees to love their job. I learned this at Nokia when I was working with them before the iPhone had come out and I was over there and they sat there and said to me, look, you cannot be to the outside world what you aren't to yourselves already. And they had a tagline of connecting people, but they literally built their physical space and trained their people to be about connectivity and connection. And I'm fascinated by your lead position. So explain that, how everyone wants to do an external communication. Everyone wants to do a marketing campaign. You're saying line your people up first. Martin, I love that question for a lot of reasons. I wrote a book and I outlined 10 paths to growth. And the very first path was customer experience. And then it went through sort of other ways to grow, right? Expand into new markets, sell more to your existing customers. There's 10 of them. And I missed employees, missed it completely. Didn't talk about it. Now I talked about it, but I didn't talk about it in its own growth path as a standalone. And 18 months after joining Salesforce, maybe a year, and I was on stage, I would say this all the time. I don't think it's a coincidence that Salesforce is one of the best places to work in the world. Across 17 countries, we're number one, and the rest of the world, we're in the top five. We're one of the most innovative companies in the world. And of course, these lists are not ours. They're from Fast Company and Forbes and Fortune and all kinds of places. And then we're the fastest growing enterprise software company. I did not think that was a coincidence. So I went to our chief marketing officer at the time and I said, I want to prove out this hypothesis. She said, go for it. So we did a project with Forbes Insight. And sure enough, what came back was you have to have happy employees to drive a strong customer experience. And those brands that do that have 1.8x faster growth rates than those that don't. So for a billion dollar brand, it's a $40 million impact. When that report came back, I went, I really missed that. And that's where that quote came from, right? The fastest way to get customers to love your brand is to get your employees to love their job. Because the things that were missing between the employee and the customer were glaringly obvious. And it was almost, Ken, what I was just saying. No agreement on what a strong customer experience means, what employees are looking for. Now, when that survey uh, was fielded was right at the beginning of COVID. And so it was sort of March, April, May of 2020, came out at the end of last year. And so I think we all can agree that the definition of those two things, employee experience and customer experience, is vastly different than what it was in January of 2020. And so we're in the middle of now doing a global study on this to tie the two things together. That going back to your original question, I think a lot of the reasons that brands miss CX is because they go, customers are our number one priority. 
number one. And does that signal at the expense of everything else, i.e. employees? And so I now say employee first and customer centricity. That subtle difference right, allows you to frame up, but you only can have one first, right? And I was, last thing I'll say on this is I was talking to a CEO, I'll leave it unnamed. And we were backstage many years ago and he said, we are cloud first and mobile first. I laughed and I said, I went to a state school, but we only have one first. (laughs) So (laughs) which is it, right? And I always reflect on that because you can't be employee first and customer first. You have to pick one. And if you're gonna pick one, Double down on employees. Uh, Tiffany, when I was learning about your book, one of the interesting insights is about how no one singular thing wins, right? And you also talked about sequencing matters a ton. So, you know, I'm curious. So if you have to sequence, is this the exception to the rule that you start with employees and everything? Or is this also one that you have to sequence and maybe start with something else before you come to employees? Great question, because I'd say this, I'd say... Sequence matters. And I'm going to just for those of you listening, right, that haven't read the book, I'll very quickly give you a story, right? If Netflix were to have launched streaming first, would they have been successful? No. Yes or no? No. No. We didn't all have high speed bandwidth in our homes. We didn't have the power that we had in our smartphones that we have today. We didn't have sort of ubiquitous devices and access to a lot of things. So if they had launched with streaming, which by the way, Blockbuster had done six years previous in a partnership with Enron, lo and behold, who knew that? I learned that during my research of the book, whoops. Anyway, but they decided not to do streaming because it never took off. So the timing was that they said, we're gonna start with what we already know people are willing to do, DVDs and VHSs. We're gonna eliminate the friction, i.e. driving, late fees, all of that. And we're gonna launch with mail order capture that clientele and that customer base. And then when the market gets a little more mature on high-speed internet, you know, not dial-up, we're gonna launch into streaming. And when they left the US, they started with streaming. And so that's what you know we mean by timing. Okay, so now back to the question, right? If you say, which one do you do first, employee or customer? I think you absolutely have to start with employee. So let me give you an example. I'm in the call center and so you call in, and I'm not able to serve you, or it takes me 15 minutes, or I have to log into five products, five systems in order to get the answer, or the answer in one system, your information in one system says you have this product, and your information in another system says you don't have this product. Okay, which is it? And now who gets mad at me? The customer gets mad at me, the individual contributor who, listen, I'm just using the tools you've given me, the databases you have, it's not my fault the data's dirty, it's not you know my fault I have to log into five places, And one stat we have from Tableau is there's about an average of 900 apps in an enterprise and only 27% of them are integrated. Now, you don't need to have all of them, all right? There are some that are HR and things, finance that are not necessary, but I guess there's probably two or three X that could probably be integrated and who pays the price? The employee, right? And so that's just one example of technology, integration, enablement, tools, training, metrics, autonomy, right? And letting your people do what you hired them to do, which ultimately, if they're happy, they're going to produce better products. They're going to serve your customers better. They're going to represent your brand more appropriately. And by the way, it's not a one-way street. If you do that for customers, they're also generally more happy. So they don't call up just angry on nine out of 10 customer service calls. And so then your customer service agents are happier. So Great question, and I think that that's how I would frame that up. One of the things that I talk about because I, I am so amused by it is if you call your health insurance provider with a question on a claim, hit two, you'll be on hold for 15 or 20 minutes. Hang up, redial the number, and they say, for sales, hit one. You hit one, somebody answers immediately. And that tells I do that me too. Every, everything I you need that. to know. Everything you need to know but. Oh, your call's important to us only if you're trying to buy from us. Otherwise, get in line and wait with everybody else. And you think, well, gee, here's an obvious friction point with the customer. Why not do something about it? There's another one as well that I often use on stage, and now I can't use it because they actually fixed it. But I would say, oh, I saw that commercial, and wow, if I order now, I'm going to get five phones. They'll come to my house and rub my feet, give me three Krizillion gigs of data per month for free, and blah, 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 blah. I call up, and they go... Oh yeah, no, not for you. Only for new customers. 
Click. Exactly. Right? And, oh, so I'm sorry. I've been a client for 20 years. I upgrade every 18 months. Nah, I'm not that interesting. And they don't do that anymore either. For most part, people have learned that your existing customer base is your richest uh, source of growth. And so they're treating them like customers as well, new customers as well. What kind of blows my mind is... I think I can mention it. I did some research and came across the insurance company USAA. And the USAA has a massive call center. And what's fascinating about the call center at USAA, or at least it used to be, that outside of the executive rank, the highest paying position inside of USAA and the hardest one to get to was working in the call center. So you had to actually work inside the ranks of the company and then move up into call center and then be responsible for dealing with claims and dealing with customers. And what was fascinating is when we were doing this research to saying who had the best customer service in a notorious market, Ken, about like really terrible customer service, they were viewed as the highest customer service, but it was one of the most well-paid positions in the company. And you had to spend years working to get into it. So it's fascinating that something as seemingly awful as call center work, and I've worked in a call center before way back in my youth, but it's amazing that you can turn that into something of high value and create a customer experience in a completely unexpected way. And USAA customers have the highest satisfaction rates with that program. Yeah, and we actually, I have a quote from USAA and that Forbes research because they just do an amazing job on that. And I think that it also goes to the comment I made a few minutes ago that individuals understanding how their day-to-day -day role impacts the experience a customer has with that brand. And when you value the employees, when you give them the opportunity to get trained and, and have what they need, and by the way, be supported in all of the things you just said, and they're not treated like a cost center, which most call centers are, that it's how many people call, which leads us to how many heads we need and, and how many do they need to answer per hour and how quickly do they need to respond. That's the metric of a cost center versus saying, hold on a second, we have to stay on the phone for 20 minutes with a customer at USAA or somewhere else, even somewhere like Zappos. They have stories where they've sat on the phone for six hours, right? And if you do that, it tells the customer service agent, hey, you care about me, right? You're interested in me helping our clients, not just ticking a box and I get in trouble because I talked, I talked for 10 minutes with someone. Oh my gosh, that's horrible. You should only talk for three. Never 10. So great example, Martin. You know what else I, I run into? And I know that Martin and Laycon do as well. want to see if this happens to you. If I'm talking customer experience, which I do all the time, regardless of the group, regardless of the business, they'll say to me, well, gee, Ken, we're not coming from Harley Davidson like you are. We're not with Rick Carlton. We can't be Lamborghini. We sell back-end tech software. So we can't deliver a customer experience to differentiate ourselves because they get bogged down with this notion that customer experience equates to some kind of really grand gestures and song and dance and singing elephants and all that. So they just determine, well, we can't do that. So therefore it's not for us because they don't really understand what customer experience means. What do you say to, to people when they assume that's something that they're not capable of because they don't have the size scale or the consumer cachet? Yeah, it's like I was saying a few minutes ago, like that individual contributor understanding how their role, their job plays a part in that experience. So for a developer, right, who never may see face-to-face -face a customer, right, they're not in the sort of front office customer facing role, but geez, now that we know customers are more likely to self-serve when they have an issue with a software application or some product, and there is no knowledge base. It isn't easy to find an answer to something. I can't self-serve. You haven't deployed bots that can answer very basic questions from a product perspective, direct someone to a video, creating videos on how to use it. That all plays a part in that experience. But once again, leadership has to say, it doesn't matter where you are in the office. If you have an office that people visit and the cleaning crew doesn't do a good job and your customer walks in, what does it say? You don't care yeah. enough to do it or you're driving down the road, and I'm sure all of you have the same situation as I have. When I drive down the road and I see a major retailer with a letter out because the light bulbs are out in their brand name, it drives me bonkers. And the reason why is because that's your brand. Like 
did people not care enough about the brand or the fact that you have that as part of that experience, Ken? Like it is, it's so far reaching. That's why I say that defining what it is, understanding the roles and how it plays a part, no matter who you are, the receptionist, the cleaning crew, the engineer who changes the light bulbs by the storefront, the malls, the partnerships, your supply chain, everybody plays a part. That makes it almost overwhelming for people to go, oh my God, how do we even improve it? And so that's why you have to have an understanding of what do your customers even think today about all these things I just mentioned, and then find those quick hit items that you can make real quick impact. You just have to pay attention to all those different parts. I always say that the experience is what we remember and the fact that you remember the store that had the light bulb out. That was your experience. The experience was they're uh, lazy. Yep. And my quote on that is, customers will remember the experience they had much longer than the price they paid, period. So if you had caught an Uber in the last 30 days, and normally when I'm on the road, I ask this very question with that quote on the screen. I say, how many of you caught an Uber, right? Almost the entire room, their hands go up. And I say, keep your hands up. How many of you remember how much you paid? Almost 90% of the hands will go down if it's 10 people or 10,000 people. And then I'll say, okay, how many of you remember if the car was smelly, the driver was talkative, the music was loud, he got lost, didn't follow the map, right? Or was driving dangerous. Everyone's hands go back up. But you didn't remember how much you paid. But you yeah. do remember that experience. So absolutely, Ken, that is, it is 100% correct. I'm officially stealing that, Tiffany. So thank you. I'll be using that. <laughs> Go, for it. Go for it. <laughs> Tiffany, as you were speaking, I was thinking to myself, well, we don't improve the things we don't measure. So I'm curious, what's the singular North Star metric that you would recommend to an organization that is grappling with these things? Is it NPS? What would you recommend people use as a singular way to track this? I'm going to answer it on the macro answer, and then I'll get into your answer. The macro answer would be, I always worry around analysis paralysis of too many metrics and getting too worried about if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. That would be like, you can't measure what Tiffany Bova does as the growth evangelist at Salesforce. And does that mean I'm not adding value? That's a tough one, right? Because you can't always measure everything. The second side of that is net promoter score, CSAT, churn rates, like those are sort of the normals. But once again, if I'm on a call center or I'm a sales rep or I'm a program marketer or I'm a developer, what does NPS mean to me? If I don't understand what that is, then I'm never going to understand, well, how do I adjust what I'm doing to satisfy that quote unquote NPS score? So whatever you choose as your metric, it has to be relatable to people. And so if you're going to try to pull together sales, marketing, and customer service, because they're the most obvious, although Ken and I talked about being a developer, and those are the most obvious. Is there a shared metric? And maybe it is existing customer growth rate, right? Because then you're keeping your customers happy. Maybe it is customer satisfaction, but that gets a little tricky, right? So something that can pull the teams together with a common metric. And you don't need 10, maybe it's one. And maybe the product development team and customer service has a shared metric, right? Because then you pull together the product and then support and service. And so I'm a fan of having ones that individuals actually understand how their role plays a part in whatever that is. Tiffany, a lot of our listeners are in sales or running sales-based organizations. A number jumped out. Would you have any book that more than 60% of a salesperson's time is spent on non-selling activity? What do we do about that? What in the heck are they doing? And how are you going to hit your quota if you're doing all this other stuff? Oh, I hate that stat. I hate that stat for so many reasons. One is because I used to be a quota bearing individual seller. And back when I was doing it, it was an Excel spreadsheet, an actual Rolodex on my desk. And then I graduated from that and I would spin my Rolodex and sort of pick who I was going to call that day. That was the sophistication of my CRM system. And then I got a single user version of ACT. Ooh, then I got one, a gold mine. I mean, I'm dating myself here and I would Classics. use Word Perfect. Yeah, I would use Word Perfect, which then I'm really old. Okay. I was spending a lot of time on non-selling activities because there wasn't the worldwide web. There wasn't social media. There wasn't LinkedIn. There wasn't all the avenues now that you have. And oh, by the way, technology was nowhere near where it is now. I mean, Salesforce, of course, but it's not just us. I mean, there's 8,700 marketing technology products. I mean, pick one, right? No shortage of tech. 
But it goes back to what I was just saying around that Tableau example from our research of 900 enterprise apps and only 27% are integrated. As a sales rep, if I have to go into five places to quote, to get a lead, data enter, create a quote, close business, look for pricing, get approval on pricing. By the time all that's done, I'm exhausted. Also, salespeople, I know it's a crazy thought, do not wake up every day and just can't wait to data enter. <laughs> like okay. that is not what happens. But also what doesn't happen is customers don't wake up every day and go, oh my gosh, it's such a great day. I'm going from stage two to stage three in the sales process. They also don't say that. <laughs> so we have created this you know, atmosphere where sales is so metric and productivity driven that they have to do all these things. They're not able to spend a lot of time selling and IT and leadership is not investing in automating a lot of those mundane, redundant tasks that sellers have to do their job. And there are ways in which we can improve that. But on the back side of that, Ken, behind the 66% of the time spent non-selling is about 54% of sellers will miss quota. And that number, by the way, over the last five or six years has been flat or gone down, meaning even with all the advancements of technology, we have not improved the amount of time sellers sell or their ability to hit quota. What the heck is going on? It just doesn't make any sense, which is why it's so frustrating to me. But once you start to dig into lack of automation, lack of AI, lack of data entry, lack of connectivity and integration between multiple tools, et cetera, et cetera, it's going to continue to feel very frustrating. I think what we need then is everyone to change their point of view is like, where are you on the sales funnel today? So we all wake up. Hi, honey. Good morning. I feel great in the funnel. How are you? And nobody cares. The only people that care, right, are those that are measured by the productivity of the funnel. If a customer does not go, oh, my God, it's so beautiful. You've found me. Now you're engaged with me. It's never like that. It's just not like that. I'm loving this, but I want to shift for a second. But within that same swim lane, I watched the video of you where you were in London and you were on the stage and you said something that I had no idea of. You said that, and I don't know where this measurement came from, but year over year for six years straight, the percentage of people actually in sales making quota is diminishing. It's shrinking. And this idea that we need to be driving people into a funnel, it's a misnomer now. And then you wrote another piece where you're flipping the funnel. And by the way, congratulations from a consulting standpoint. Amen, sister. You are taking a visual metaphor and flipping it. And boy, am I down for that. But you were like, change the thinking and focus on the customers that you have and rethink your process there. So one, explain that quota stat because I'm flabbergasted. The market is getting harder. And then what's this new approach you're talking about to rethink and actually increase the amount of time selling and not doing non-sales related work? So the stat on the quota attainment came from CSO. So they do an annual study on sales optimization and that's where that came from. And it was literally flat over three or four years and, and or down and then kind of back up, but it's never gotten meaningfully better. 2%, 3%, 1%, right? So there's a lot of room for improvement. So if you just make the hypothesis that if I could give back 10% of a seller's time from that 66% to 56% of time spent non-selling, what would the result of quota attainment be? It's not going to be one-to-one, -one, but let's say you've got two or 3% lift. I'd be focused on giving sellers time back all day long, right? Because if you can get two to 3% there, and then you could get two to 3% by integrating systems, and then you could get two to 3% by creating connected metrics between sales, marketing, and service. And if you could get two or 3% on automation and better tools, you could get yourself to 10% improvement or 15% improvement. Challenge with that is something I call the seller's dilemma, which is sales leaders, unfortunately, are so hyper-focused on hitting numbers that they're unable to spend any time on this transformation kind of conversation. So the dilemma is, how do I hit numbers while at the same time transforming for tomorrow? Because if I'm too focused on transforming for tomorrow and I don't hit my numbers, I won't have my job in 18 months. So that seller's dilemma is real. And so leaders have to find a way to have either a partner in crime for the head of sales to be their sales ops leader. Sales ops is getting a much larger seat at the table because of this. 
to really focus in on optimizing, but that's the operation side is not necessarily strategy. So if you're large enough of a selling organization and you can get some help on that kind of strategy operations, and you as a leader have to give yourself permission for so many hours a week where you focus on that, you can kind of overcome that issue. Tiffany, I wonder how much of this is about fear of what implementation of these things might bring for tomorrow. The loss of jobs and things like that, where maybe it's not about not knowing what to do, but a fear of what these new tools might lead to. So it was maybe nine years ago, maybe 10 years ago. And I was working for Gartner at the time and another analyst firm made the prediction that automation was going to eliminate a million sales jobs. I didn't agree with it then. I don't agree with it now. I couldn't say anything then. (laughs) I can say it now. But we saw from our research that high-performing sales teams that were really good at using AI and automation were actually hiring new salespeople, not eliminating them. That the productivity was such that the profitability per head went up because of the automation allowed them more time to sell the sellers may have been able to generate a million dollars in quota attainment every year. And now that we've done all the things we've just been talking about, right, around automating and improving time selling, they're now hitting a million three, let's say. And so that sort of lifts it all. Now, if you could take that additional profit and say, I'm going to do one of two things, spend more marketing dollars or hire more heads, right? Well, if you're using marketing technology correctly and you're doing almost the same exercise we just talked about on the sales side, then marketing should be getting more effective as well. And so you could spend a million dollars and earn a half a million or you earn a million and a half and now you're spending a million and you're earning three million. So what is the best usage of that additional profitability because you've optimized using technology? And so I think that's really where you have a chance to change the game. The new power couple for me is human and tech, not human alone, not tech alone. It is the two. So Using a bot for service to answer quick questions, direct people to a video or a knowledge base, it's increased above where the bot can actually handle it. It pushes to a human. That's how many more calls you can take. You don't need a humans to do the the simple stuff or pushing to e-commerce. Do you need a high powered seller to touch it or can e-commerce take it all the way through and then get the humans focused either on the basic customers or complex deals, whatever you do. So I think that's where human and tech plays a really huge role. Well, Tiffany, when we're talking sales and AI and technology and customer experience and how we measure these things or don't measure these things, a lot of people don't know where to go when they've got questions. And there are also people who know a lot about this that would be more than happy to share what they know with others. And that's a really kind of backhanded way to introduce your work with an organization called Givitas. Thank you for bringing that up. Look, I've had an amazing career and a lot of it, almost all of it, I can point back to people being my champion and helping me, advising me, mentoring me, pulling me out and saying, can't do that, or pulling me out and saying, that was great, double down there. And it was a lot of giving. And as I've sort of moved out of Gartner and moved to Salesforce, one of the reasons I chose to join This organization is a lot about the culture and also where I was in my career about trying to give back to a community that has been so good to me. So Adam Grant, who I'm sure most listeners will know who he is, he's written the book Give and Take, and he started a community called Givitas where it is all about that give, right? So give content and then ask questions and then other people giving and taking the content out. And it's really a way for me to take you know, the network of the hundreds of thousands of people that, that are connected to me in some way and the book to create a community. The vision is to create a safe place and community where people can ask questions for no fear of judgment and within the network, people answering uh, questions, everything from I'm looking for a new you know, software application to I'm looking for a PR agency to I want to move in my career. What should be my next step? It's really open. And so it launched today and I'm really excited to see where it goes and all of the conversations that have already begun. And I'm just really excited to see what's next there. Well, great. Tiffany, this has been so much fun. I also want to just mention to our listeners that Tiffany's book, Uh, Growth IQ, Get Smarter About the Choices That Will Make or Break Your Business, is in fact celebrating its third anniversary today, totally by coincidence. How can people who want to learn more about you find you? 
really active on social. Follow me on LinkedIn. Join the Givitas community. Follow me on Twitter. I've got a podcast called What's Next with Tiffany Bova, where I have all kinds of really interesting and amazing guests on. We we actually don't talk so much about sales. It's really about leadership, management, change, disruption, career advice. We get a little bit into tech, but I try to stay away from it, obviously, because we do. I do so much on the Salesforce side on those particular topics. And then obviously the book, and we're working on that research. And so you can go check that out with Forbes Customer Experience. Uh, it's called the Experience Equation. So you can search that with Forbes and Salesforce and, and download that white paper. It's a great piece of work. Fantastic. What do you say, guys? Well done? Absolutely. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. It was a great, fun conversation. It was a great pleasure. Bye, Tiffany. And now, for everyone's favorite segment of the show, after the interview, what's got our attention this week? Martin, Flaherty, what has got your attention? Well, Ken, I think you probably started something with the constant discussion of Pringles, uh, the stackable Uh snack. Looking forward to hearing from you guys. But that sent me down some interesting rabbit holes. But my favorite thing that I've seen in the last couple of weeks is an announcement from a brand who I don't really spend a lot of time with. Actually, that's not true. I don't spend any time with. But I've turned to my son repeatedly and said, I really want to go to Taco Bell. And he looks at me, he goes, don't. And I know, but he does go to Taco Bell. He and his friends go to Taco Bell. I love Taco Bell and I'm not a patron. And I love Taco Bell even more because a story was released that next year being built in Brooklyn Park, Minneapolis, there's going to be probably the most innovative quick service restaurant, basically a drive-through being created by Taco Bell. And I would encourage everyone to go Google this and look at it because it is fascinating. It is a two-story building. It has four bays underneath. One bay is going to be manned by a physical person, a Taco Bell person taking orders if you just want to drive up. The other three are going to have QR codes so you can order online Go to the place, wind your order, it will receive it. And then the best thing, gentlemen, the Bellevator. They have a conveyor system oh. called the Bellevator will deliver your food to you, release it from, I don't know, pneumatic tube or some sort of really cool device. You'll pick up your bag and you will go. It, it's so cool to me to see a brand that has given us everything from loaded nacho fries to like the, the Doritos Locos, just the loony totally cool food creations that they do and then representing it themselves by doing innovation in something that seems pretty staid and regular like a drive-through it just has me giggling and just hats off i love taco bell this is exciting it's got me grinning remarkably i've started using more and more domino's pizza tracker and i have to tell you there's something magical to that changing the user experience by doing nothing to the food, but just how you get it. No, you're seeing the robots, the the self-driving cars? No, this is just you tracking when your pizza goes in the oven, when it will be ready, when you show up within two minutes, they bring it to your car. If you don't, I was in a park with my kids watching a movie recently, and we're like, well, we want to order a pizza, but we don't want to walk back home. So now they have delivery spots that are hot spots that are like near random places. So you don't even need an address to get a pizza delivered. I mean, it's brilliant. It just works like magic. So... Lacon, what's got your attention? Okay, so to me this week, it is all about Apple, right? Here's a brand we all revere. They do everything amazingly well, and every once in a while, egg on their face. The basic idea here is they are trying to prevent child pornography. So Apple has come up with a new technology, which essentially scans what's on your phone. And if anybody's using an Apple device to traffic in this stuff, they're trying to protect kids. And so their big magic thing is once it starts to upload to iCloud, to the cloud, it will then scan, use a lot of machine learning to sort of figure out what's in this photo and then flag things. On the surface, sounds like a great idea, except back to what we were talking about with owning your own things. Number one, I bought the damn phone. So do I want you scanning anything I do on my phone, even for whatever reason, right? Here we are having a conversation about ownership and like First Amendment rights and so forth. And the question is, should we give up all of our rights to a company because they're trying to do something to help everybody? At what point does the government get to come in my house or more importantly here, a company get to come into my house? So this is one where there's a lot of egg on their face. And 
I am torn on this one. I understand the need to protect kids. I've got three of my own. But the reality is this seems like it's going a little bit too far. If I buy something, it is mine. And you don't have the right to kind of keep peering in there. And so this is one where Apple, uh, a company that normally doesn't mess up, they think through things pretty diligently. And I think in this case, they did not anticipate sort of the wrath that would come when it comes to sort of privacy rights. Wow. Good yeah, stuff. I, I agree, man. And I agree with it's you. a noble, it's a noble idea, but it really is a level of personal invasion. Yes. And, and again, it's so hard. I agree with you, man. This is a really hard one. But yeah, I saw that too. Speaking of personal invasion, this probably won't be very popular. And I'm gonna sound like a curmudgeon-y old fart again pretty soon here. Oh, wait a minute. But you're I gonna f- mean you're gonna be on brand. Oh, uh-huh. uh, well, okay. <laughs> I'm irritable, but I, I, I flew from Milwaukee to Baltimore today on a super early flight. So I wasn't in the best mood at the airport. And that quickly went downhill from there because I mean, I was standing in line to buy a newspaper and the woman in front of me in line had some ugly rat dog that started yelping at me and wouldn't stop. And of course she pretended to not notice. So I'm standing there and no sooner do I stop fantasizing about giving both the dog and the owner are a good slap. We board the flight and oh, she's no. right behind me coming and bringing the noisy thing onto the plane. Guys, I really hate this. I'm not sure how or why, but over the last few years, and I know you've all seen this too, I've seen an increasing number of cats and dogs coming onto planes. And oh, isn't that nice? Well, you know what? No, it's not nice. I'm sorry. When it comes to cats, I'm allergic. When I see a cat next to me under the seat, my first thought isn't, oh, how cute. My first thought is, this flight's going to suck. And I know a few bazillion other people think about that, too. And look, I know people love their pets and don't want them down in, in the storage bays or in the luggage bays. But, you know, it went that way for years. But suddenly now, everybody with a pet, cats and dogs, bringing them on the plane. What about me? I paid good money for this seat. I shouldn't have to be subjected to that. Why can't we just go back to the way it was before? Service dogs, by all means, legit service animals should get the white glove, first class treatment. But I think everyone else's precious little pals should be down in the cargo load. Or I should get something. If I'm sitting next to somebody's pet, I should get either a discount on the next flight or some incredibly gracious gift from the airline for having to put up with us. Ken, you were trying to buy a newspaper? Don't you just love me, guys? I came up in journalism. I was a paper boy from the time I was eight years old. I like the smell, like the touch, like the feel. That's my morning, coffee and paper. Got to have it. The old man won't change his And something to to roll up and hit people's pets with. There you go. That works. (laughs) A friend to every dog lover in America. We'll be hearing from the nice people at PETA following this episode. Love the dogs. Love the cats. Leave them at home. I'm with you on this one, though. Leave the pets at home. Or it's, it's, I, it's I not do, comfortable. I do have it's a invasive. portfolio company, by the way, just to plug her. Ponder, P-A-W-N-D-R, everybody. If you want your pet to travel but can't go on the plane, send them through Ponder. They'll deliver them just like Uber in one piece. You can track the entire thing online. Check out C. Carter's company. It's called Ponder. So just cool. like Uber for pets. How awesome is that? And go stop at the Bellevator on the way. So on that note, everybody, thank you very much for listening. We had an amazing conversation with Tiffany Bova. If you have not checked out her blog, checked her out on Twitter or LinkedIn, please do that. And she's got an amazing podcast for you to listen to. Uh, again, these are your tolerable hosts. I will be with you next week with another genius. Thank you all for listening. And please download the podcast and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.